My name is Michael Heen. I'm an alcoholic. And as, as is our custom in Texas, I'll uh, give my sobriety date through the grace of God and this beautiful program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I haven't had a drink or a pill since July 10th of 1971, for which I'm deeply grateful. We have a whole bunch of people uh, on our list. I hope to God some of them are here. Today we'd like to talk a little bit about achieving and maintaining sobriety, or in other words, uh, how I found it, how I nurture it, and how I enjoy it. Um, I found Alcoholics Anonymous through a doctor friend of mine who was uh, who had had a terrible history. God, he was a pathologist who decided to to do group therapy uh, uh, psychiatry in hotels in Dallas. Um, was shooting Riddle and IV. I won't tell Lou's story, but Lou knew I was a drunk. And one day he called me, and uh, everything bad had happened to him. He lost his wife, his big home, his cars, the usual story. And uh, I just noticed in the paper uh, the day before that uh, he had lost his license and had three felony charges. And because I was still goofy, I hadn't had a drink in about four months. But I went by to see Lou, and uh, that was kind of a brave act if I'd have really known what was going on, but I didn't. There were FDA agents. There were uh, narcotics agents around checking licenses to stop by his house because he was also selling drugs and manufacturing LSD in his garage. Uh, he was sitting in the house in a rocking chair, and I said, geez, Lou, where are all your friends? And he said, they're staying away in huge negative droves. Uh, so uh, I helped send Lou off. Uh, Austin Ripley got him into a place in Tennessee because Rip at that time had a waiting list at Guest House, and Lou wasn't a priest. He would have taken him, but he just didn't have room. Lou came back, and uh, he started to go to AA, staying sober a minute at a time, and he asked me to go with him, and I didn't want to go to AA. I had no idea what AA was about. I never read anything about alcoholism. I avoided the subject wholeheartedly because I just knew that I'd find out about myself and have to cash it all in. And I still hung on to that hope. Maybe I can still drink. Uh, I, like I said, I hadn't had a drink in a few months. Uh, I was taking a little Librium. Uh, for my nerves, and Lou said, would you go to uh, a meeting with me? And I said, Lou, I don't want to go to an AA meeting, for God's sake. And he said, you know, people might see me. And he said, no. He said, if anybody asks, I'll tell them you're here to study the disease. And I was so phony, I bought it. And I went, and I was shocked. Uh, you know, middle-class America, nice people, everybody laughing, and Right away, I identified, you know, uh, I don't know how well I'd, but I, I thought, I'd like to get to know these people. I'd like to uh, find out what's going with them. And I was glad to find out that they didn't fingerprint me or take a history or make me sign anything. And I kept coming back. And I kept taking Librium. And I kept getting sicker. But I came back every now and then. Uh, my doses of uh, sedative drugs went up and down, depending on... Uh, you know, my marital situation, uh, how much I owed the banks, how hot the IRS was on my trail. My life was totally unmanageable. 
uh, had seven kids, and uh, they looked at me like, I wonder what he's going to do today. My wife hated me and uh, told the kids that, you know, he's no good, and I sort of believed it too. Uh, I'd moved out of the house eight times. I always took one wrapped hand chair with me and wore it out, carrying it on the top of my car. Those were horrible, uh, terrible days, and I, I don't even like to think back on them. Anyway, finally in 1971, um, by this time I'd met Margaret. I was divorced. I was living in a, in a depressing one-room apartment, and the IRS was threatening to sell everything I had, you know, maybe even me. And uh, I decided uh, I could no longer go on. I just flat couldn't go on. I got all my pills, all I could find, hundreds of them, flushed them down the toilet. I had, knew nothing about withdrawal. I had no idea what might happen to me. I must have a hell of a high tolerance for, or a high threshold for convulsions because I never had a convulsion that I know of. Uh... This little apartment had a small courtyard, the only green grass, and one day the United States Marine Band was playing Sousa marches out there, and that was a pleasant auditory hallucination. And I had other hallucinations, but not bad, and I didn't convulse. And I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous and ashamed because a lot of them knew me and a lot of them knew I was faking it, taking pills. But the third day... Uh, I went to a closed meeting. I went, by the way, I was going every day, and I decided to tell the truth. I didn't, I wasn't two years sober like I was faking it, so I told them I've got three days. I went back to being a rookie. They clapped. They came over and hugged me and kissed me, and I felt like I was inside Alcoholics Anonymous, no longer looking at it through a big bulletproof window. God, that was a good feeling to get into Alcoholics Anonymous. I never want to get out of Alcoholics Anonymous, so I found happiness and joy and peace and all kinds of friends. And, you know, I've talked enough, and there are a lot of great people here, and the whole thing about this IDAA is meeting other doctors, finding out how they do it, uh, how do they, I'm, I'm, I'd love to know how every one of you got to Alcoholics Anonymous and how you're doing it, because you're obviously happy and you're obviously, you look good. And I feel good just being a part of the whole deal. Is uh, Robert, uh, yeah, from Minnesota. I'm Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I've been, uh, you I'm an alcoholic uh, Norwegian Lutheran gas passer from Minnesota, and uh, where I live, if I say, if I say that all in uh, one mouthful, they say I'm being terribly redundant. Um, let me tell you just a little bit of what it's like being a Norwegian in, in Minnesota. Uh, we tell stories on Ole and Sven up there, and uh, Ole and Sven were going hunting uh, they talked Pierre, the bush pilot, into flying them up into a northern Minnesota lake to go moose hunting. And they, uh, Pierre dropped him off on a point and said, I'll pick you up in a week. And uh, he came back in a week, and there on the point was Ole and Sven. 
and two big, huge bull moose. And uh, Pierre says, I don't think that I can get these things out of here. And well, he says, Valley says we uh, we made it uh, we made it off the water last year. And uh, Pierre says, well, how'd you do it? And uh, well, he said, well, we tied one moose on one pontoon, and we tied another moose on the other pontoon, and away we went. Pierre says, okay. So if you got off the water last year, we'll try it again this year. So they tied the moose on, and he revved up the plane, and they went tearing across the lake as fast as they could go, and they were rapidly getting to the other side, and the trees were looming up. And just before they got to the trees, they lifted off the water, cleared the trees, and flew smack dab in the side of a hill. And a few minutes later, uh, Ole was picking himself up, and he was saying, Sven, Sven, where are we? And Sven was saying, well, Ole, he says, the way I got it figured, we're about 200 yards further than we was last year. <laughs> and, and that was sort of the story of my life for more than a couple of years. Um, I kind of got off the water, cleared the trees, and ran in the side of the hill. Uh, one more little Norwegian story. Uh, Wooly was walking across the pasture one very hot August day and wasn't watching too well where he was going. All of a sudden, he stepped in it, and he stopped, and he looked down, and he says, Oh, my God, I'm melting. Now, I don't know if any of you all can identify with that, but on the uh, on the morning of the 5th of November, 1978, I not only thought I was melting, but had melted, and it was all lying there in a big 282-pound blob on a detox bed and Fergus Falls State Hospital Drug Dependency Rehabilitation Center, uh, which happens to be in the town where I practice anesthesia. Uh, I was in my third treatment center in uh, in ten months. Uh, on the morning of before the fourth of November, seventy-eight, or on the afternoon, I should say, I'd gone out deer hunting on our farm. Took my uh, good old jug of vodka along with me and was uh, drinking 100 proof vodka out of a paper bag bottle. I apparently passed out in the bush. Now, my wife Karen knows that I kind of frown on deer hunting after dark, so she must have guessed what was going on. And uh, she and the kids were out in the bush about 9 o'clock hollering for me. And uh, they found me uh, babbling in the bush and stumbled me back to the cabin. And she strongly suggested that I uh, seek treatment. Uh, and I think after a, what was a token resistance, I uh, volunteered, so-called, uh, to go in. And I went in treatment about five minutes ahead of the commitment that I proceedings that I'd talked her out of the two previous nights. Um, I've never had a bold, a lightning, spiritual awakening, the, like the kind that I've prayed, had prayed for many times. So I guess what I'm going to tell you about will have to do until one comes along. 
Uh, while I was lying on that bed in the detox center, I began talking or thinking to myself, and I uh, was saying something like, well, you went to your first treatment at Hazelden uh, to get your wife off your back. You went to your second treatment at St. John's in Fargo to save your job, and that was after a 13-person intervention in the hospital administrator's office. Uh, when I walked in there, I thought they'd sold tickets to the damn thing. Um, and then I, and I went on to think to myself, well, as long as I'm here, why not do this one for Bob? And it had to be somebody else talking to me because the shape that I was in, I just couldn't have come up with that gem by myself. Um, one of the first things that I asked them there was, uh, how long is this treatment going to take? And they said, oh, about four weeks. Now, in this uh, program of uh, rigorous honesty, the first thing that they told me was a blatant lie. Um, it was eight weeks, maybe a little bit more. Uh, but that lie was okay because I think it may have saved my life. I decided to stay in that treatment center rather than go to some place where I knew I could get out of in a month. Uh, a few days later, a clinical psychologist was interpreting that wizardly little pop quiz that we call uh, the MMPI. And among the other cute things that she was telling me was that I was paranoid and schizoid and uh, uh, very angry, and that I that she thought I was a slow learner. I I guess she had something there. I knew I was angry. I was angry at myself and my wife and my kids and doctors and everybody in general. Uh, I was so damn mad at doctors, I was going to write a book, and I was going to call it Surgeons, Lawyers, and Other Assholes I've Known. And uh, uh, I kind of forgot about that book uh, uh, while I was in treatment, or in just after I got out of treatment, but uh, at least I forgot about it till I met Bill Daniels at the Morristown meeting about three months later, and he called, <laughs> he called me a big, dumb, fat drunk, and, and I sort of resurrected my authorship desires, and uh, I planned to devote at least one chapter to him in that book. Uh, I can't do that now, now that I've heard the addendum to his story, I... Uh, I know now that he's human, and that wasn't what that book was going to be all about. So. Uh, anyhow, after about eight weeks of working through a lot of hard stuff, including a family intervention, which was held in front of my treatment group of about 25 guys, and after a lot of tough love, I finally got my medallion. And uh, my discharge plan was that I attend... Uh, one or more AA meetings per week that I uh, have a daily AA contact, and I decided to make that a, a personal AA contact rather than just a telephone one, and that's 
little hint for some others who maybe are struggling that uh, that worked beautifully for me. Uh, takes a little bit more of a commitment. Uh, I got three sponsors. Uh, one is a physician, one is an alcohol counselor, and uh, and one is a gunsmith. And I have learned a lot from all of them. I, I think the gunsmith probably did me the most good of anybody. I was also supposed to attend uh, aftercare sessions, uh, alcoholics after, uh, aftercare sessions, two hours a week for three months, which I did. <clears throat> and then uh, after that, both Karen and I were supposed to be in a, in a couple's aftercare group for three months, and uh, which we did. Karen, by the way, had sort of become a professional in the spouse's aftercare group, uh, sort of stagnating there for about a year waiting for me to be sober long enough so that we could join each other in the couples group. Um, people ask me why this treatment worked, and I usually say something terribly profound like, uh, I was ready. Um, and I, that may be more profound than I really think that it is. Uh, uh, I really believe that it took those first two treatments to to soften me up for the kill, so to speak. And um, the treatment centers probably could have been reversed, or the order of them, and it would have worked out the same way. I probably still needed three. There were two differences, however. I'd I'd done the uh, I'd done the first two treatments for my uh, for my or for others. Um, uh, by myself, and uh, this last one I did for myself with others, um, and I also didn't drink, and I went to meetings, which uh, they had always told me all I have to do to get sober is don't drink, go to meetings, and with my uh, Norwegian ancestry, I got half of that right. I went to meetings and wondered why the hell it didn't work. <coughs> um, one of the first meetings that I went to, and this is um, before I got sober, uh, some clown stood up and uh, said that he thanked God for uh, being an alcoholic. And uh, I remember thinking, uh, there it is, ain't no way that that turkey can be playing with a full deck or rowing with both oars in the water, because uh, here I am trying to hide my alcoholism, and this guy's standing up in front of 30 people telling them, that he thanks God that he's an alcoholic. Um, I can say that now. I can thank God that I'm an alcoholic, and I'll I'll tell you why. I didn't like me before I was drinking. I didn't like me while I was drinking, and I like me now. And if it took being an alcoholic to get to where I am now, uh, then I can thank God for, that I am an alcoholic. Um, it's just really that simple. Um, I'd like to talk just a little bit about what AA has given me. <clears throat> uh, I gave AA a drunken, broken, spiritually bankrupt, morally destitute, suicidal, obese, hypertensive body. And, uh, from this down payment, I received from you many, many things. Uh, you meaning AA. Um, first and foremost, 
I received a method of staying sober, which to me is dry and at least semi-happy. Um, I also got much more. Uh, I got a basic philosophy of life that I can apply to everyday living problems that we all have, and I know a lot of non-alcoholics that can't say that. It gave me a spiritual basis of life where I see the God as I understand him, uh, working through people like you. Um, I've even become comfortable in my Lutheran religion, which I, I never was before. Um, I've learned to love. I'm not sure that I could before, but if I could, I learned to love again. Uh, I learned to love myself and my family so that we could go through that beautiful process of growing together and getting well together. I, I learned to love friends so that I can help them and they can help me. I learned to laugh again in a healthy manner. I could laugh at myself with others rather than at, rather than at others by myself. I've got friends again, true friends, uh, true friends with tough love who will tell me when they see me regressing as well as when they see me growing. Uh, and I need both of those because I'm usually the last one to see either of them. Uh, I've gotten a renewed mental and physical health and vigor. Uh, my blood pressure uh, before treatment was running about 160 over 100. I weighed 282 pounds. Uh, my blood pressure went up about 190 over 110 in treatment. Now it's down about 106 over 60, and I had a resting pulse of about 60. I lost 55 pounds, 45 of them last year. I've gained a few back and with the renewed uh, renewed faith that I've gotten now from this meeting. I'm getting ready to start again and get down to where I want to be. Uh, my uh, peripheral neuritis is gone. I can run comfortably now before I used to sweat when I blinked. Uh, uh, there are a few other little fringe benefits I just might mention. Uh, two and a half years ago, I was on summary suspension from the hospital staff in which I practice. Uh, this year, I'm chief of staff. I'm not sure whether that's an honor or not, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's working out good. Um, this coming year, I'm PTA president, if you can believe that. I'd rather face a charging elephant again than talk to PTA people. And, um, I had one time I was a parrot in the biological sense only, I think, and, and uh, now I have a great working relationship with my kids, and, and uh, this PTA president thing is crazy. Anyhow, I uh, uh, I was even up for church vice president, if you can believe that. And I, I lost that election, and I kind of went through some of the thought processes. One of our famous politicians gone, or had, had gone, and... Uh, and told myself, well, I'll never have Bob Kreiser to kick around again. And uh, 
Uh, the more I thought about it, the more I chuckled to myself, and I finally figured out I'd probably had a better chance of winning that election if I'd have gone to church more than about eight times that previous year. Um, I mentioned what I invested in AA, which wasn't much, that pathetic person that I was two and a half years ago. The returns have been absolutely miraculous. Uh, people ask me how long I have to go to AA. Uh, I say as long as I'm breathing, and that's no problem because I love it. I started AA because I I had to go. Uh, I go now because I have to, I want to, and I, and I do love it. Uh, I sort of treat AA like one of those fancy long-term bank programs you hear about or hear advertised. Uh, and I don't want to suffer the substantial penalty for early withdrawal. Um, there's one real quick little story. About a year and a half ago, I was driving to a little small town meeting, and usually at that time consisted of about three or four people. Uh, skunk started to come across the road, and he was acting real funny. I kind of slowed down for him, and and uh, he sort of came toward the car, and I decided maybe he was one of the rabid ones. And so I, I got out and was going to shoot him, which I did, and he sort of took off in this alfalfa field. And I wanted to make sure that uh, he didn't run off and, and suffer unduly, so I started following a zigzag course through this field after him. Finally dispatched him and then headed back to the car on a straight course. Well, I wasn't really watching where I was going. By the time I got back to the car, I was pretty well scented up. And uh, so I ran home, changed my pants, and went to the AA meeting, uh, still smelling a little bit skunky. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the AA meeting, I started laughing to myself because the message had become very clear to me. Uh, it was sort of telling me a little bit about my life, uh, and the message was this, is that if I uh, kept first things first, kept my priorities straight, I wouldn't have to go through life in a stink of my own making. Um, in closing, uh, I just can't really express my gratitude for this meeting, for your friendship, for a chance to reinforce my sobriety. So I guess a simple heartfelt thanks we'll just have to do. Thank you and God bless you all. Thank you, Bob. I hope everybody that uh, comes up from now on who has a sponsor will mention it and uh, talk. I'll mention a few things about sponsorship. Um, my sponsor saved my life many times, uh, made my life happier. Uh, Bill uh, celebrated uh, 32 years of sobriety this year. Uh, every time I go to an AA convention, I hear about slips and uh, stuff, and I remember what he said about that, uh, we were at a convention together, and uh, it's kind of, his sobriety is impressive, some little gal came up, uh, probably a, you know, a convention groupie, 
and said, Bill, what do you think is the major cause of slips? I guess hoping for some big psychological answer. And he didn't hesitate a minute. He turned to her and said, Whiskey. <laughs> anyway, is uh, John uh, here? Yeah, John. Hi, everybody. My name's John Glenn. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Uh, I uh, just came in the room a few minutes ago. Uh, I got a uh, <clears throat> small resentment this morning. My the light was flashing on the uh, phone in the room, and I called back to Maryland to find that uh, my son had wrecked a fairly expensive car, claiming it wasn't his fault, and that's the about the sixth accident the kid has had in, in about a year and a half. And he, he does drive too fast, but it's never his fault. Uh, yesterday, uh, we went out for a couple hours, and I drove back to Fort Sam Houston, where I have come a little bit over 25 years ago. But my addiction to mood-changing drugs goes back... Uh, 25, 27 years, right from right from medical school, I was addicted uh, first to amphetamines in the daytime to make myself feel better, and then as my uh, consumption of those increased, I had to use barbiturates at night to sleep, and then when things like Librium came out, I started using those heavily in the daytime, and it got to the point in... Uh, well, probably within seven to ten years, uh, that when I used to travel, I had, always had two toilet kits. I had one with my shaving gear and toothbrush, and the other toilet kit I had, uh, probably thirteen different drugs from cocaine in case I got a cold or sore throat, uh, morphine, demerol in case I had pain, sedatives, tranquilizers, stimulants, uh, muscle relaxants, uh, yeah, I, I had a drug for every purpose, and I did live chemically. Uh, I got a lot of treatment for my addiction, uh, in the course of that 25 years. See, early in medical school, I realized there was something funny about me, that I had to take amphetamine to feel all right, and I went to a psychiatrist, uh, in New York, where I went to medical school, and he was kind enough to write my prescriptions for me so I didn't have to bother my buddy, the psychiatric resident. Uh, I went on, took a surgical internship in New York, and uh, there were some financial problems. I think part of the reason I started taking amphetamines was because I had uh, some, some financial problems. My father had been a lawyer in New York who had bilateral carotid obstruction, and he had a very slow... Uh, deterioration and demise, uh, that was in the days before Mike DeBakey showed us how to fix those very neatly in about 20 minutes when I was in Walter Reed, and his brain sort of came apart over five or six years, and the family fortunes, uh, dwindled, and, uh, at the end of internship, I got, uh, one of those routine notices back in Korean War days of from the military that I had six weeks to enlist to, to uh, volunteer as a captain or be drafted as a private. And I, uh, patriotism swelled in my breast and I came into 
came into service in the mid-50s. And I think a good point in taking off on uh, achieving and maintaining sobriety, I remember 25 years ago when I was at Fort Sam Houston going to soldier school, uh, I was very much torn between uh, going into the regular army and taking an army residency uh, by by the doing of that, I could afford to have a family and, and we could afford to have children. I've been married in medical school uh, <clears throat> versus going back to New York and going into maybe a shorter residency there. And I think I spent probably the whole six months I was here at Fort, Fort Sam Houston agonizing over that. Uh, because if I went in the Army, if I took the Army residency, which was offered to me, uh, it meant leaving home. And there was something about me, uh, and perhaps I'd always been that way, that uh, I felt very, very uncomfortable at the thought of leaving home. I wanted to be up where my people were. Uh, we had a place out on the end of Long Island that I loved, and... I just did not feel at ease, uh, you know, being a long, long ways away. Uh, it always took me, when I changed stations in the Army, and I did go regular Army, it always took me probably a year to begin to, to feel comfortable in any way uh, to be at home, and in the course of that time, I did use more and more drugs. Uh, In any case, uh, I was sent from, uh, initially when I was drafted, I came into Fort Sam Houston. I was sent over to El Paso to Beaumont uh, for about nine months to do anesthesia, where I started drinking the pentothal, which was a wonderful drink. It tasted bitter as hell, but it did wonderful things. It took away all fear, uh, made me very brave, and I did things like tell the chiefs how to run the place, which was not appreciated. And uh, when I was in Salmon in uh, El Paso, I was offered a surgical residency at Brooks, and I had to get in a plane and come over here for the weekend and look at Brook and see if that would be satisfactory, because I didn't really want to want to be away from New York. Uh, but I did decide after much, much agonizing to accept that. And uh, we came to the six months basic regular army uh, medical corps course here. And in the course of that time, I found a boy from Texas in my class who had been assigned to Walter Reed back in the Northeast. And he and I cooked up a deal uh, after three or four months of negotiating with, with General Heaton where we could switch and he could go to Brook and I could go back up to, to Washington, which was near home. Uh, as I said, I had a lot of treatment for my addiction. When I got to Walter Reed, uh, I was taking enough drugs that uh, I did things like call a commanding officer a son of a bitch and things like that, and I got a very adverse efficiency report in my first uh, first three-month corps of duty. And uh, 
I got very depressed because I tried very hard to do very well, and my report said that this officer does excellent work, but, and then it went down for about a full page on being disruptive and over-competitive and being uh, somewhat less than charitable to people I thought were my competitors who were actually in a columnar system, not competitors at all. Uh, I stayed at Walter Reed for for three years, getting more and more into drugs, and finally at the end of that time, uh, uh, I'd been into uh, more and more dissension with my wife who left, and I resigned from the Army after, after about four and three quarters years to go play musical states with her. Uh, <clears throat> I got very depressed, and I went to a psychiatrist at, uh, in Washington about my drug addiction because I was heavily into barbiturates, amphetamines, and uh, Librium. He told me they were they were bad and changed me to chlorohydrate and sparing, I guess it was. And finally, that didn't do any good, as, of course, you all know, and I finally had to turn myself into the army, which I had avoided doing, and and they treated my addiction with shock treatments, and uh, that cured my insomnia. But uh, it really did nothing for my uh, for my head, and I was quickly back into amphetamines to to uh, clear that up. Uh, when I left the Army and I finally settled back in New York and I was right back into my addiction, I spent six months at a rather ritzy psychiatric hospital up in uh, Westchester County, New York, where we played golf every day, had milieu therapy. Uh, and nothing in the course of six months there, we talked to psychiatrists maybe 20 minutes a week and nothing... Uh, Nothing uh, was said about drugs during the whole six months I was there. So that was the second course of treatment. When I left there, I was told I would have to see a psychiatrist uh, sort of indefinitely. And I thought I'd better take another geographical cure. I came back to Washington. And I talked to a psychiatrist probably for 12 years in Washington, twice a week about things like the Redskins, and that uh, <clears throat> that didn't do anything for my addiction either. Uh, and back in Washington, I guess being put away for six months sort of scared me because I controlled my drugs a little better and I actually built a very lucrative practice, did quite well for about seven years. But in the early 70s, things started going downhill again. And uh, by 76, 77, I'd been turned in... Uh, the hospital staff and I hid behind the uh, I hid behind the protective uh, screen of being a nut. And when I was called in, asked what I was taking because my eyes were blurred and my my uh, speech was slurred and my gait was staggered. I told them I was taking uh, lithium and Elevil, uh, which I was taking along with 13 other things, and. Uh, the only thing wrong with me was mood swings, which my psychiatrist was nice enough to write me a letter for. And I kept on taking my drugs, and my addiction kept getting worse. Uh, 
about 1977, my family decided it was time to put me away again, and they took me out to Chestnut Lodge, which is a little private uh, psychiatric hospital in Rockville, Maryland, just north of north of Washington. And they were talking in terms of two years, and I was not anxious to get back into that again because I'd been the psychiatric route over and over and in institutions and out of institutions. And I knew it didn't work. Uh, and I was not anxious to go, and I didn't know what to do, and I sort of dickered with him for seven months. Finally, in the summer of 78, I asked the guy I was seeing occasionally uh, why I couldn't be treated like a regular alcohol addict, uh, that they didn't have to go away for two years. And he said that he thought that... Uh, he knew somebody did that kind of work, and he finally referred me to uh, Joe Chambers, uh, whose story was... Joe Chambers was the first doctor I'd ever run into who admitted he was an addict, and he looked all right. So, uh, you know, whatever he did, I thought maybe I better to pay attention. And I knew that... Uh, he relied heavily on Alcoholics Anonymous, and I had a lot of sincere confusion. What the hell a self-respecting drug addicts like myself would want to fool around with Alcoholics Anonymous for? Uh, but it seemed to work for him, and so I thought I'd just better go along because I had uh, exhausted everything else. Uh, uh, coming back to talking about what I'm supposed to talk about, how to achieve and maintain sobriety, I've been all right since uh, 26th of September 1978. Uh, I was in detox in Montgomery General, where we detox our patients in Maryland, and then I went to Seneca. I was there for 18 days. I went to Seneca, which is our treatment center over by the Potomac River. And then I came on into into AA, and I've been going to usually seven, sometimes more, and probably at least four or five meetings every week uh, for the past two and a half years, and things have been getting continually better. Uh, one, uh, one thing I do to achieve and maintain sobriety is I abstain. Uh, all these, these 25 years, this quarter century that, uh, I was repeatedly getting into trouble, being sick, sort of getting patched together and going out and doing it again. Uh, I thought I was taking the wrong drug or I was taking the wrong proportion of drugs. And it wasn't really till I ran into this program and, and Dr. Chambers that I got this rather unique idea of not taking any drugs. Uh, it really, it really was a very, a very profound, uh, you know, new light that came down. Because over and over again, I'd swear I had convulsions, and uh, I had convulsions back in 1971, and I was taking Quaalude at the time. The psychiatrist told me that I shouldn't take that, and he told me to take Placidil, which I, which I started to take by the handful. And I really had never occurred to me uh, to actually abstain. And... Uh, you know, I tried it, and boy, it's, it's really something. Uh, my life the past two and a half years is not like anything like the previous 25. Uh, 
My first winter, as I said, I got out of rehab in, uh, in the end of October. And I had my favorite brother die of cancer and uh, about a month later. And that kind of upset me. I was out in Colorado trying to bury him and there was a blizzard and we couldn't bury him for about five days and I didn't sleep out there. It was a rough winter and uh, I'd been told to rehab to get a sponsor. And it wasn't really till January when I really was feeling terrible and I didn't know what to do. And Chambers talking about sending me out to Hazelton, Minnesota, where he had been for some months to go out there and get tuned up for some months. And I wasn't sure I could financially afford that, and I'd beaten my practice uh, almost to the verge of extinction. I didn't want to give that up. It was then that I got a sponsor, uh, Steve Stragner, who's a veterinarian up in uh, Washington suburbs who had flunked out of Seneca three times and flunked out of Hazleton twice. And I figured anybody who had that much trouble couldn't be all bad. And because he, he had been well for about four years and he was a great help to me. I got a lot of the advantages of going to an extended place like Hazleton, uh, you know, without the expense or or time of actually going. He taught me a lot of things like alternatives, what to do about a lot of the symptoms I had, things like physical exercise that you learn in high school but forget after a while when you live in chemically as I was living. Uh, but roughly six months after, when I've been sober, roughly six months uh Dr. Chambers invited several of us up to the MedKind meeting in Baltimore uh, where the Committee on Physician Rehabilitation was having a little session, uh, kind of like a mini AA meeting where several guys were asked to get up and tell their story. And about, you know, I agonized over that for a while. I sure as hell didn't... Uh, didn't want to get up and talk in front of anybody from the Maryland Medical Society for fear I might be seen. It hadn't bothered me, of course, to stagger around my hospitals when I was practicing my addiction. But at six months, I was really very uh, queasy about it, and I told him when I got to Baltimore, knowing certain terms, he was not to call on me. But about a month after that, I went to my first IDAA meeting in Baltimore, in uh, Morristown, and things began to change, and it was there that I saw men like Bill Daniels and John Mooney and Joe Cruz, and I got some uh, some feeling that, that one really could recover from this type of illness, and life could be all right. One didn't always have to be uh, a hobble bird or a wounded animal, that uh, it was possible to to live a life of good quality and, uh, you know, that, that there was a rich life out there. Because my first winters, I said, I'd had, had uh, no no fun at all. It had been a really rough time. Uh, but I've continued, and each six months has gotten better than the previous six months. I have a sponsor uh, who I see fairly regularly and talk to fairly regularly. 
I read my 24-hour book every morning, and that's a, that's a tremendous help. That's part of my ritual. Uh, besides the basic things I think that we all know, namely to abstain and to go to meetings, uh, I just jotted down about two or three minutes ago a few things that I do that, uh, that, that seem to help me. Uh, during my first year, and incidentally, I was taught that uh, that recovery takes time. It takes a year to recover physically, and then a second year to recover emotionally, and maybe a third year to recover spiritually. And I find in my case this is true. I Part of me wanted to believe when I got out of rehab that I'd put in my 28 days, and boy, that ought to be it, and I ought to be fine. And I wasn't fine. Uh, I felt good today. I left, but four days later I felt like hell. And one thing that I've kept in mind that helps me is to realize that recovery takes time. And and uh, as long as I realize that and I see myself getting better, that's a big help to me in achieving further sobriety and maintaining the sobriety I have. A technique I used the first year... Uh, which what I call looking back. I could go to my office and I could pull out my daily logs and I could see what I was doing exactly one year before. And no, no matter how bad things were uh, during that first winter or that early first year of sobriety, it was a hell of a lot better than the previous year when I hadn't been able to get my bot in the office more than one day a week and patients were sending in their requests for transfer of the records by the dozen. And things were going to help pretty fast. So comparing back one year, which I think a lot of us who keep logs in the office are able to do, was a tremendous help to me. Uh, another thing I do, which is probably not in the program in a way, uh, but it certainly has helped me. Is I love dogs, and I have a couple of dogs at home. And I have one dog, a purebred uh, fox terrier, but I have one that's a mixed breed named Matilda. So I talk to a lot. And uh, Matilda, and I used to talk to her a lot that first winter. And whenever I talk to Matilda, she cocks her head and she listens. And she never says the wrong thing. And... Uh, and I can tell her anything. Uh, I remember that first winter telling Matilda, God, I felt crazy as hell, you know, but apparently nobody could see. So I just keep going, and I guess it would be all right when I get that compulsion to, to take something to make myself feel what subjectively would be more normal. Uh, I learned in the first year it was okay to feel crappy, to feel funny occasionally, uh, that these things pass. And, uh, you know, one feels good again later. Uh, another trick I have, which I never used to do, is, is I try to take care of myself. Uh, I used to think back when I was an intern, when I was in college, that the more I borrowed the night, the longer I worked. Uh, uh, there's something masochistic about this, that that was good. Uh, I, I always used to routinely not eat lunch, because it, in a way, it, I'd feel so shitty that it must be good, you know, to, to do that. 
And I don't do that anymore. I go down and work in the morning, and then I knock off. And I go home, and I eat lunch, and I lie down for half an hour, and then I'll go out to the hospital. Uh, I try to get enough rest. I try to eat regularly. And I don't have this this crazy philosophy, the long-distance runner that I used to have. If things feel bad and they hurt, they must be good. To me, that's just plain insanity, but... There, was, there, was, there used to be something macho about it, and that's a change in attitude. Another thing that I uh, that I do nowadays that's helpful is I find I can think about a lot of things positively rather than negatively. And uh, I was burning on the way down from breakfast that this kid had uh, had wrecked his car. The car he wrecked is the car of a patient who is a friend of mine that I just sent down to Willingway in Statesboro to Dr. to uh, Dr. Mooney. And I thought, oh shit, this guy has ruined Jennings' car. Uh, then I started to think about it, that maybe the Lord is using my son Kettner as his instrument and there's a message there for Jennings that he really shouldn't have had this slip after 16 months. But we'll uh, we'll get his car fixed and get it back to him. But I I was impressed uh, when was it Wednesday night that or Thursday night at Starlight someone was talking about a friend in the program who had a poorly differentiated carcinoma of the lung and thought that was good because it gave them time to take care of things rather than to die suddenly. And boy, that's something I. Uh, you know, that was a thought or an attitude that would never occur to me. Uh, we just had a good friend up at Montgomery General, a counselor in his 40s, come up with a poorly differentiated carcinoma. And I thought that was a pits, the pits. And in a way, it is a pits. But there is another way to look at it. There's, there certainly are, you know, positive ways to look at things. There, by changing our attitude from negative to positive, by using gratitude, it's certainly uh, a big help in achieving more sobriety and maintaining what we have. Uh, I use the slogans, too. Uh, since living in Maryland and my son went to University of Maryland, uh, I sort of remembered the old proverb of the tortoise and the hare. Maryland's symbol is a terrapin. And I do what I call my turf tortoise routine, which is different from the frantic uh, rushing I used to do. And every once in a while, I have to say to myself, easy does it, and let's do the tortoise routine. And the uh, harder I try to slow down and hold in, I seem to you know, really get a hell of a lot done with a lot less stress and strain. And... Uh, I'm not only a lot more comfortable, which is uh, very much what sobriety is about to me. Uh, I'm a lot more comfortable, a lot less tired, a lot less harassed. And by easy, using a slogan, easy does it, I, uh, I get a hell of a lot more done and I feel a lot better. Uh, to sum it all up... Uh, Yesterday, when we drove around Fort Sam Houston, uh, I had a very, very different feeling than I had 25 years ago. Uh, I talk about the great desire to go home, to go back to New York when I first came in the Army. Uh, 
and yet New York was not home. I was not home with myself. But since coming into this fellowship, uh, wherever I am that you are, why I feel at home. And now, if it were 25 years ago and I was here and some higher power, whether it were God or the Surgeon General or somebody else said that I should be in Texas or Timbuktu or wherever, wherever you people are in this program is, why I would be at home. And that's something I've gotten, uh, since coming this, through treatment, coming into this program, and for that I thank you and I'm grateful. Thanks, John. We're going to have a break, uh, 10.30 or so, uh, provided you don't all uh, leave after the break. But I'll trust you. Uh, I always get fascinated by people who talk up here, and the last two guys I was fascinated. Then I looked over at Bill, and he gritted his teeth and pointed at his watch. So I'm going to have to have to ask everybody else to uh, to move it along. I don't want to get Danielized for sure. Is Dave here? Did he? Okay. How about Jack? Is he here? Yeah, Jack. Five, Dave. Uh, my name is Jack, and uh, I am an alcoholic. I'm very grateful to be able to come to the meeting today. I, uh, a few years ago, I would not have expected to be here either. Um, I I got on the booze and the pills while I was uh, overseas in the, in the service in the Air Force, and uh, I heard... Uh, Bill Danaher talking about New Year's Eve in 73, and I, I recall uh, very well that was a, a night that uh, we they handed everyone in the officers' club a bottle of champagne in each hand, and uh, I don't know somewhere about 3 a.m. some of my some of the other uh, some of the pilots or somebody since I was a flight surgeon for a certain squadron decided that I'd had enough, so they carried me out to the flight line, threw me on a C-130 that was going to the Philippines, and I, and uh, apparently I was passed out in the back of the plane, and I, on the first thing I remember was that they were coming into uh, Clark, Clark Air Force Base, and there was a fire in one of the engines, and they were ringing the bell in the back, and I guess they thought everybody was, they wanted to let everybody know that they would, might need to evacuate, but I don't think I was ready for that, and uh, things went from from there downhill. When I came back to the uh, states, I I worked in California for a while, and uh, uh, I got to the point where I was having to write a lot of checks that I couldn't cover because of my drinking and my amphetamine addiction, and. Um, Eventually, my license was suspended there, and it was revoked in the state of Texas. And um, I sort of floated around the country for about three or four years. Um, I spent a lot of time, and I spent about a year at the VA hospital in Washington, D.C. Spent a, a, uh, about uh, another year at Dallas. And... Uh, 
I don't know that some some of the people have talked about their techniques for getting their license back. I I didn't really go through any particular technique. After about four years, I hadn't um, I hadn't been in any real trouble. I hadn't been arrested for any uh, felonies, only for misdemeanors. So I was sitting downstairs in the bar of the Texas Hotel during one of the state board's meetings, and they they started paging me, and I was ha- I was in the bar having a drink, and they called me upstairs and sat down, and they told me, "Well, we're gonna we're gonna give you your license back." And I, it was uh, I don't know, it, it it didn't make any sense at all. So uh, you, sometimes these things happen; uh, they don't always work like you think they will work. And um, but I, I I managed to uh, in a couple of years after that, they were ready to come get me again and um, fortunately some uh, I, I was I was just sort of put away into another into the hospital at Houston the VA there and they kept me another year well the day I left the VA hospital in Houston after a year of treatment I um, I, I got drunk it seemed like that there was a that um, even after that long a time, I had given up the pills uh, for a while, but nothing happened after that. I still had I still had to drink, and I finally came to the the point in 1974 where I uh, was again a, a, a being looked at very closely by the board. I had. I had been uh, working in in Arkansas and had uh, uh, had been working on a, as an uh, on an alcoholism unit, uh, and I had reached the point where a lot of times when I woke up in the morning, I wasn't sure whether I was uh, a patient or, or the doctor on that unit because I I couldn't always re- recall, and I had to. Um, uh, I knew that that the that really the end had come for me because in Texas the second time they take your license they uh, they they don't give it back usually that's uh, there's not very many people I think that have that have really tried them out on that but I uh, it looked like that there wasn't any other solution or there was no other it was inevitable. And um, that's when I decided that that, um, that really the I didn't have anything left, and so I made a decision that I had tried everything I knew, and that I, I decided that I would that since nothing seemed to work, and since I didn't have anything left, I would turn my my life over to whatever higher power there might be. I didn't believe there was a higher power. And I didn't I didn't think that anything would happen, but I decided that I would try and find out. And I, I, I had to know and I knew that the only thing that would ever work for me is if there were some power that could create miracles. And uh, I did get on my knees on June the 14th in 1974 and I asked that whatever this power might be, that it would help me. And a couple of weeks after that, I 
and um, looking around for work, I, I managed to wind up in San Antonio, and then through uh, Dr. Seal, I, I wound up out at Starlight, where I stayed for about a year. And things were not easy. Uh, I I was not very a very good candidate. I might say, uh, they say some are sicker than others, and I think probably Dr. Seal would agree with that, that, that um, I had a real, it was a real dog fight, to put it bluntly. Um, everyone was, was trying to, to do everything they could, but I, but I, I, I tended to, to drop cigarettes in people's cars, I tended to wreck cars, I tended to, uh, to not show up in the right place at the right time. But at least there I was able to make a beginning. And I uh, I kept going to meetings because people kept encouraging me, kept dragging me back to meetings, even though I was having a lot of difficulty. And I, I would go for two or three months sometimes. So that first year was extremely difficult. But I think the thing that made the difference was the fact that I knew that there were people who cared about me and there were people who were willing to coerce me into treatment. There were people who were willing to force me to get treatment. There were people who were not afraid to to uh, kind of kick my butt and to... Uh, Tell me the truth and not to pull any punches. And because of that, after a year or so, I did I did leave there. But I think it was a, a gift of God that, that I was able to stay there for that long. I moved up to another another uh, town up in the Panhandle, and there I was able. To, uh, by the grace of God, I, I met an older lady who uh, was a very close friend, who became a very close friend, and who sort of watched over me for the next year or, or two years. And uh, as it so happened, this lady was the same kind of person as... as uh, the people at Starlight, they wouldn't, they, they didn't take no for an answer. And, uh, this lady kept forcing me to go back to AA and kept dragging me back into the meetings when I was having difficulty. And, uh, finally by March 24th, 1976, I was able to finally let go. In uh, letting go, I, I finally realized that I had to let go of self. I, I believe that was the thing that really made the difference. Because I, I found that, that a lot of my anger and a lot of my dishonesty, a lot of my resentment, and the things that were really defeating me came mostly from self. In trying to maintain my sobriety nowadays, I find that, that it is it is very important 
for me to uh, to make meetings. I don't I don't think that there's anything that uh, anything that can replace that. Uh, I, this this may sound like it's uh, simplistic, but for me it this is where it's at. And I found that that in maintaining sobriety there there are just uh, sort of uh, phases that I go through and recently I've been able to for myself see a kind of a sequence and I pray for these things each day that that, that I might be able to to have them I pray first of all that I that I might be able to surrender because I believe that that this is where it begins when a person becomes willing to surrender. I pray for I pray for faith that I and I can continue to believe in this higher power. I pray for acceptance, that I'll be able to accept the other people in the world and the way the world is run because I didn't really like those things before. I pray for honesty, that I can be honest with myself and, and with others. And I find that, that in order, in being honest, I have to reach for some humility. I think it's it's difficult to be honest with yourself and others, and it does bring about humility if you if you do try to be honest. At least I I ask that I will be given this. I pray that I may be able to to know a little bit about making sacrifices. And I ask, I ask that, that, uh, some way I might be able to, be able to give some service in my community and with the people that I'm associated with. In doing these things, I find that, that I can, and I am able to know a little bit more about love. And that really is where it all comes out for me. Before I came into the program, I really was not able to to sense or to be able to, to find this thing called love. And now because of, of this program and because I've, I have been able to get a little bit more honest with myself and I've been able to find a little bit of surrender, I am able to to know a little bit more about love. And that's another reason that I keep coming back to this program. First of all, for sobriety. And I think also for the reason that as as I continue to try to work the program, I'm finding more and more about, about this relationship with this higher power. And the relationship leads me to be able to to find out more about love. And this is why I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be here. And I, I thank 
my loving friends who wouldn't give up, and I thank my God for this. Thanks. Jack, appreciate what you had to say. Is Lucas uh, here? Hi, my name's Luke. I'm an alcoholic and addict, and I haven't had a drink of alcohol since March 19th, give or take a day, 1975. I had a little blackout. I'm not quite sure of the date, but I call it the 19th, and I've been free of pills since June 1976. And I can assure you it's better this way. Uh, I, what I'd like to talk about a little bit is stress, because um, I'm a drug researcher, and uh, aren't we all... <laughs> And I did a lot of research with drugs on me, and I did it to adjust my stress level. Uh, just so you know that I'm in the right place, I drank my way out of a brain surgery residency at Yale. Uh, going to the operating room got in the way of my drinking, and I found that I, I did better work uh, when slightly intoxicated, but I was sure that wasn't going to last very long, and I know that there are an awful lot of people alive out there today because I did not complete my neurosurgery training. Uh, I did the obvious thing for an alcoholic and an addict. I took a Ph.D. in pharmacology. And I can tell you that I've done an enormous amount of research on drugs, mostly on myself. I came into this program first in 1975, and I had a good experience for about six months. What I really want to talk about is how I maintain my sobriety and how I deal with stress. Because uh, my first slip my first drunk in the program was after six months of talking the talk but not walking the walk. I learned a lot in treatment. I went to AA meetings. I sounded great. Everybody said, Luke, you're doing so well. I was doing so well, they asked me to come back and give lectures at the treatment center where I had uh, gone through treatment, and I became the medical director of the treatment center. Um, my slip was generated by my fear of flying. And uh, I was one of these white-knuckle flyers, and most of you say Hail Mary's on the landings, but I was one of the guys that said the Hail Mary on the takeoff. I was worried about the plane falling out of the air, and so I uh, started my first slip taking Valium. I didn't put my faith in the program. I didn't know how to get serenity the way that we get it by working the steps and by having faith. I got serenity from Hoffman LaRoche. And uh, the result of that, of course, was that I had uh, immediately then relapsed to drinking alcohol. And I won't go through all the details because most of you know how those kinds of things happen anyway. But once my mood was adjusted with Valium, my thinking wasn't straight, and I got all my old craziness back. Uh, I spent six months of very bad, progressive alcoholism. Actually, the first few times it was the worst thing in the world that could have happened because I got away with it. And I would go back to my home group and talk a little bit of nonsense, and they'd say, oh, look, you're doing so well. And uh, so I got worse. I made another fundamental mistake. My sponsor had told me, don't do anything different in your life for the first year, preferably two. After six months of this sobriety, followed by the drunk, I went back into a psychiatry residency. Uh, then, in order to deal with the stress of dealing with all these crazy mental patients, naturally, I had to maintain my uh, equilibrium, so I started eating about 100 milligrams of Valium a day, not drinking much, 
and unfortunately drinking under fairly controlled situations, but uh, maintaining the level mood with the Valium. My uh, residency uh, colleagues and the professors later told me they thought that I was very cool. Here I was working with a bunch of professionals who are supposed to know about all these things, and they did not recognize a quite intoxicated individual strung out on Valium on a daily basis. So that all came unglued after about four months. I went back into treatment, sat there as the medical director because I'd been medical director of the program uh, on a hip pocket ad hoc basis. Sat there in my own treatment center as a medical director, a patient, did mental status evaluations on the other patients in my head and got nothing out of it. Got out of the treatment program, was drinking again. Drank for a month. Don't remember any of that month. Completely blacked it out. I was doing research. I was going on site visits. I was going to AA meetings. And this is the disaster. This is the craziness. Taking a patient to an AA meeting, drinking from the bottle under the seat, eating Valium, picking up the patient, going to the AA meeting with him, and coming away there with that wonderful warm feeling, knowing that I had helped him. And here are all my friends who are afraid to tell me because they didn't want to hurt my feelings. So that's another thing I decided, that I am not going to be afraid to tell anybody that I see intoxicated that they look intoxicated to me lest I hurt their feelings. We often tend to let each other die because we're afraid to hurt the feelings. I'm glad that I'm in a group like this that's not afraid to hurt my feelings. Uh, I finally got sober on the streets of Minneapolis. There have been a couple of people here from the Twin Cities, and I like Minnesota because I sobered up up there. I did not sober up in the treatment center. I sobered up at the uh, 2218 and uh, Bloomington Ridgefield and a bunch of meetings, and my sponsor, who loved me, took me up there when they were ready to send me away. He showed up. He was a sort of Johnny Appleseed, the most important person in my life at that time and over a period of several years. He'd shown up when I was really crazy at the end of this blackout, and he took me off to Minnesota and took me to a lot of AA meetings, and that was when I let go. I'll never understand what it is when I did let go, but I know the process and I know what I need to do. Um, I stopped managing my own life, and I put myself completely in his hands, and for that period of a couple of weeks, that sponsor was my higher power. Uh, he taught me the things that I needed to know. He reinforced the things that he had told me before. Don't do anything professionally for at least a year. Don't let yourself get remotely connected with alcoholics and addicts in a professional way until you've got some sobriety of your own, he told me. This time I did that. He told me another thing that I think is important uh, since there are a lot of us here who do work in the field. Uh, of alcoholism and drug addiction. He told me that it was essential for me when I went to deal with somebody to be able to understand whether I was doing it as a 12-step call to maintain my own sobriety or whether I was doing it as a professional. Now, I know from my experience in treatment centers and working with our uh, disabled doctors in Iowa that I cannot both do a 12-step call and be a probation officer. If I'm going to be the supervisor of a sick doctor, I'm doing that because the medical society or the board of pharmacy examiners or someone has asked me to do that. If I get that mixed up in my head and make a 12-step call out of that, I'm in trouble. Because 
that man wants to be honest with me and tell me his story and tell me what's going on with him because he's in trouble, and then I'm going to turn around as the probation officer and say, aha, I got you. So I have to remember that when I go on a 12-step call, it's a 12-step call to maintain my own sobriety. When I start doing professional things or when I'm doing something in a treatment center, I need to remember that I'm getting paid to do that as a professional. That was one of the things that got me drunk when I started this nonsense about psychiatry and Valium, and I got kind of mixed up. Uh, the other thing that the sponsor told me was to uh, try to understand that I wasn't as intelligent as I thought I was. I'm very grateful for my brain damage. I've talked to a couple of other pharmacologists uh, who have um, also discovered this phenomenon, that it's the brain damage sometimes that helps some of us to recover. I needed to, to destroy something. Some kind of a chemical prefrontal lobotomy had to occur before I could get uh, the concept of humility. I had to let go of some things, and I think that the chemical damage I did to my squash probably had a lot to do with that. I had to make it very, very simple. And that's the nice thing about this AA program, is that it is a simple program if I will stop trying to make it complicated and stop trying to understand. So the minute that I find myself trying to understand what's going on, uh, I find it's very useful to turn that off, uh, to simply go back to fundamentals and to accept. I learned to accept God because God put this sponsor and, and other things and other people in my life just at the times that I needed them. Uh, Bill, who was my best sponsor, the one I'm talking about, said that every time I ask God for help, he sends me people. Every time I ask God for help, he sends me people. Sometimes it's people to help me. Sometimes it's people for me to help. But I've noticed that every time that I am in trouble, this does happen. I have the faith that God is going to do the right thing for me. Another thing that's been very useful for me is to to work on acceptance, uh, and and uh, you, you just speaker just uh, two ago was talking about, and uh, both of the speakers before me have talked about acceptance. Uh, a very important thing for me, I have to stop managing. I have to accept the things that are happening to me, and I have to do the thing uh, that John was saying that this is some kind of a blessing in disguise. It's not a problem. It's an opportunity. The things that have happened in my life have been gifts that God has given to me in order to help me to grow. And when it hurts a lot, I know there's a lot of growing going on. So I've had to learn to accept that growth process. Uh, the stress. Now, I believe that in my present situation, which is working with a bunch of disturbed adolescents at the state juvenile home and being medical director of a hospital treatment program, uh, could be a very stressful life. I travel a lot. I work in two different places. I live out of a suitcase during the week. I fly my own plane around a lot doing that. Uh, it's very stressful. People are after me. They're calling me. My beeper is going off. There's an enormous amount of stress. I'm flying an airplane. The white knuckle flyer, a year and a half ago I got a pilot's license and I got an instrument rating and I bought a Cessna Skyhawk and I fly around Iowa. And I do all kinds of things that used to be considered by me to be very, very stressful. Uh, for stress, try uh, coming in for a landing in weather like we've got today. It's not stress. I 
defined it as the stress. I learned that I'm the one who decides what's stressful. I learned that if God is back there sitting on my shoulder and he's acting as my consultant or my co-pilot, that I can handle a lot of stress. The stress, um, I discovered, was something that I had to invent in order to have a reason to use drugs. And so I learned to adjust what was my idea of stress and what I needed. That Now I don't need the stress and I don't need the fear. And so I don't need the chemicals. I used to think I had to have the chemicals in order to handle the stress. And I discovered that that was just backwards. My life could be very, very stressful, but in fact it's a challenge. Uh, as far as maintenance goes, I use mostly the 10th, 11th, and 12th steps. And the 11th step particularly, maintaining conscious contact with the God as I understand him is a very important thing. And seeking through these two tools of prayer and meditation, uh, and I do a lot of that, do a lot of praying, meditate in a very informal way. Uh, I need to have that consciousness of contact with God all the time, and I particularly need him when I'm flying instrument approaches. I find that I fly the plane much better if I realize that the co-pilot is uh, on all the time, that the automatic pilot that I depend upon, my higher power, is there when I want him. Uh, but the 10th, 11th, and 12th steps are my maintenance steps, and I try to work with that, and I try when I'm doing 12-step work to do 12-step work to stay sober myself and not get that mixed up with my professional work as the, the drunk doctor, uh, which is what my colleagues call me in Waterloo. It's very important for me to do those maintenance steps, to go to a lot of meetings, uh, I, we don't have a doctor's group yet, but uh, Bill is after me to get uh, the Iowa doctors going. We have a lot of good AA in Iowa, particularly in the areas where I work, and I get to a lot of different meetings all over Iowa. That's my support system, and I have home groups in three different towns. So that's important for me. A sponsor in each location. I need to have a sponsor in each of those places where I am because when I'm in trouble, it's usually when I'm in the wrong town for the sponsor, and so I've got to have a support system everywhere. I do it one day at a time, and I keep it as simple as I can. I thank God for people like you. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. I have an announcement. Um, Bob's uh, dentist from uh, Lubbock would like to meet with uh, uh, all the dentists uh, at 1.30 in this room. Cooking up some deal, I guess. Um, Ed. My name is Ed, and I'm an alcoholic. Good morning to you all. <clears throat> I've been in the program for five months now, and this is my first meeting. Uh, my friends in uh, Dallas, uh, I go to uh, AA and to a doctor's group up there. They always kid me about talking too much, so I'll try to keep it brief this morning. That's a bad joke, really. Uh, how it was uh, for me was 
worse than some of the stories that I've heard and not nearly as bad as, as a lot of the others. So it's just a typical uh, story of 12 years of alcoholic deterioration. Uh, finally, I was 12-stepped by uh, Michael Healy and Jack Barnett. Uh, they're both here now. <clears throat> For some reason, I was ready to listen and do what they told me to do. I had lost control and uh, didn't have enough sense to look for help or ask for help. They came out and told me I needed help, and I believed them. I don't know why I did, but I did. <clears throat> uh, as for uh, maintaining sobriety, it's a simple program for simple people like me. I just do what they tell me. I don't drink. I read the big book, and I go to lots of meetings. I didn't uh, think I could ever go to a lot of meetings at first. Michael told me I had to, if I wanted to succeed, that it would be best for me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I thought that was absurd. But it uh, turns out that it really wasn't. And I'm way past 90 days, and I still go to a meeting every day. I enjoy the meetings now. Uh, I thought it would... Uh, conflict with my busy schedule at the time it was suggested to me but I really didn't have a busy schedule I had uh, <laughs> I had a TV guide and that was about it <laughs> I enjoy the meetings and uh, I don't go because I feel the <clears throat> I don't know how many meetings I need actually uh, I just like them so I keep going I guess I'm going to enough because I'm sober. <clears throat> All my friends are in AA now, and that, uh, that's sort of like my busy schedule. I didn't have any other friends, so now I have a whole uh, wealth of wonderful new friends that I've met in this program. Uh, for a long time, and, well, still, I, I uh, saw those uh, slogans on the walls, and I thought they were kind of simple, and they are, and they work, and I use them whenever I can. Uh, I I handle daily stress with uh, live and let live and easy does it, and when I get uh, real uptight, I uh, say the serenity prayer, and that's really about it. It's not too complicated at all. I'm very uh, grateful 2AA, it's given my life some direction and comfort, which I certainly didn't have before. I'm uh, happy to be here and meet with all you fine people. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ed. Ed's been one of those uh, real neat people in my life. Uh, it's just absolutely great to... Uh, to tell somebody about the program and watch them grab it, get enthusiastic, and do all the right stuff, you know? And uh, I've learned all kinds of stuff from that. It's just been a, a terrific thing. Is uh, Sheila here from uh, New Jersey? Okay. Hi, my name is Sheila, and I'm an alcoholic and drug addict. 
Uh, it's a very strange phenomenon to be here. I have been to a few, uh, and it seems like everybody's telling my story. I can't imagine this. I started a love-hate affair with AA seven and a half years ago. And Bill Daniels is sitting over there, and I had the unique pleasure of being at an IDAA meeting for my second AA meeting. And like most of you, I came in very gracefully. I had a broken nose, cut over my eye, was under arrest, had lost my license, and was also under house arrest at home. My feelings finally got me to AA after being arrested. And my feelings kept me from staying sober. And now my feelings keep me sober. And I'd just like to tell you a little bit about what it was like and what happened to me. I fell in love with AA, but my arrogance and my feeling of not being able to ask for help didn't help me to stay sober. And like many of you have said, sponsorship turned it around for me. I came into AA seven and a half years ago and did a lot of the wrong things, but a lot of the right things. I did drink again, and I say I'm a drug addict because, again, at the IDAA meeting three years after I came into AA, I discovered that I also was addicted to other chemicals, which I had never realized. For example, I remember in residency, I'm a psychiatrist, I remembered in residency being down in the emergency room, and I was at a residency where it was very, very busy. And there was a jar of Ritalin. And I can remember popping these at night. And there was a nurse who eventually made a comment to me and said something about putting them away. Never gave it any thought. Uh, another incident that I remembered again after being in AA about three years was I was at my home. There was a geographical cure. I was married at the time. And we had moved to a place in New Jersey, which to me was a hellhole, you know, the end of the world, um, and I remember getting, I was working in Staten Island in a clinic, I would not do private practice, there was something that I knew that was going on, I couldn't identify it, again, I was a periodic, which also helps, you know, helped my denial tremendously, and I remember an incident where I got hold of some Tolerant, and I injected it. And I can remember falling down the stairs in the house where my office was. I started a very small private practice. And I remember stumbling through the kitchen to get into the office and banging off the side of the door. It was a laundry room out there. And I remember thinking, my God, what's wrong with me? These things came back to me years later, as I said. I honestly did not remember these incidents. And this was, came to me about, as I say, three years into AA. I got a certain amount of sobriety, but again, the arrogance and being terribly isolated. Some of the wrong things I did, um, made major decisions, got a divorce or started divorce proceedings, couldn't get out of the marriage for almost two years. Of course, I blamed that and went out and took a drink. Continued in AA and no sponsor, although I assumed I had a sponsor. Um, I assumed I had a sponsor because I used to talk to this gal and she was very good to me. And I went to a lot of AA meetings, and I went locally. And I also was very resentful about them taking my license away. How dare they? I was damn lucky I didn't get shot, because from what I heard from the police officer later that it took control of two of his fellow officers not to shoot me. That's how, that's how enraged he was, and that's how much I wanted to die. Because I taunted this man in the police station. 
And that's how much I hated myself. And by the way, I hated the rest of the world just as much. Three years into the program and not knowing what was going on, not knowing what was wrong, I did something for the first time. And that was I called someone when I was drinking. And again, my drugs, I don't call them slips because I set this up. I set it up to die as far as I'm concerned. I had called this gal who I assumed was my sponsor. Now, she's not a physician. She's a high school graduate, works for a telephone company. And she said something to me about, Sheila, you're going to get sober when you want to stay sober more than you want to drink. And she said something about coming over the next day. And I was in the kitchen. And by this time I was divorced and I had my own home. And my sons were downstairs. And I was sitting at the kitchen table, and I remember thinking, when is this shit going to end? And I looked up, and this woman, Gwen, came through the kitchen door. And I said to her, by this time I was beginning to sober up, because I hadn't had that much to drink. The progression of my disease, I think three ounces, and I was absolutely insane. And I said to her something about, you know, was it the next day? Had I lost the day? Because I was a blackout drinker. At the end of my drinking, it was just, it was just phenomenal. And she came to the door and she said, no. She said, I just decided that maybe you were ready. And I started to talk to her. And then I said to her, well, you know, since you're my sponsor. And she looked at me and she said, you've never asked me to be your sponsor. She said, you've never asked anybody for anything. And she said, why don't you ask? So I thought to myself, well, this is pretty easy. This is what it's all about. I mentioned I'm a psychiatrist because of the silence part of it. And I think you can probably identify with this. I went to ask her, and I couldn't say anything. And we had five minutes of silence in that kitchen. And I have sat in silence in my office with a patient with no problem. And I stood there, and I stood there, and I finally started to say it, and I started to cry. It was the first time I had cried, and I was 37 years old then, since I was a kid. And I asked her, and it turned my life around because as someone just said it before, I reached my higher power through my sponsor. This was over three and a half years ago, and I have not had a chemical since that time. It's been absolutely magnificent for me. Uh, everything does not go great. I still have a very rough time asking for things, asking when I need things, but I am learning how to do it. And I owe a lot to all of you, because this was the beginning for me, and I can remember Bill Daniels, the first three years, I always called him Jack Daniels in my head, and I also was going to write a book, Bob, but it was going to be all about Bill. Uh, the last three and a half years have been terrific. Um, I've grown up a lot, and my love-hate affair has turned pretty much into a love affair with AA. I go to local meetings, I get to the IDAA when I can, and I really enjoy it, and I always hear something here, I always hear my story. I can now say that in, in the past three and a half years, the love affair is pretty nice. 
and I guess it's not as hard for me to say now that I need all of you and I love all of you. Thank you very much.